We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. And the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh-oh. Welcome to the first full day of fall of 2022. Uh-oh. And it feels like it. Uh-oh. It's Hamilton's day. <laughs> Take two. Scott's on. Oh. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. And the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Prime Minister is finally dropping all COVID-19 travel mandates as of September 30th. Just in time for him to go surfing. Here, Scott. Yeah, baby. Here we go. I don't know. I was getting, I was getting giddy like pre-pandemic days. Uh, good afternoon. It is three oh nine, and it was worth the wait, wasn't it? What the heck? Hey, hey, you know what? We're not perfect here. Nobody here pretends to be perfect. And uh, and, and you know what? What's important is uh, when you go off the rails, you just steer a little bit to the right and get back on the uh, back on the roadway, and off you go. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. The gang's all here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. And you know. It's Tuesday. What the heck? It feels like a Friday. Let's keep rolling with that theme. Uh, you can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Poll question of the day, our highly un- unscientific Twitter poll question of the day, and we love uh, for you to offer your opinion. Uh, new research shows that hundreds of family doctors uh, in Ontario have left the profession uh, since the start of the pandemic. Do you have a family physician? Right now, 10% of you are saying no. Feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and again, I think that's the situation you're seeing right the way across the country. Yesterday's on the Omicron targeted COVID-19, and I'm determined to try to get my uh, booster this week. Uh, will you get it? And will and I were talking about this. The numbers, not as high as we have seen in the past. 56% saying yes, uh, 44% saying no, but again, it is... Uh, it is an unscientific poll. Feel free to jump in. We would love to hear from you because uh, it gives us something to yak about anyway and tells us uh, where your head's at. All right. What else we got? Oh, there it is. <laughs> so uh, obviously still talking about uh, Hurricane Fiona, uh, which has wreaked havoc over uh, wreaked havoc over the east and uh, power outages and such. Uh, we're going to give you a, uh, a bit of an update here from Global News' Mike Droulet. And not only, uh, you know, because this is behind them now, now obviously it's the cleanup and, and trying to figure out how, you know, what you can learn from this. But uh, uh, Port of Bass, places like that, um, they're right on the sea. They're on floodplains, you know, and obviously, as Tim Powers said yesterday, who lives uh, out that way and has had for most of his life, said that, you know, fishermen live by the sea because that's what their industry is. So what do you do about these uh, little communities and such that have literally been washed away? Do you rebuild there? Do you go back? Uh, how do you plan for all this? Uh, here's Global News' Mike Drillet. The massive cleanup continues here in Port Abbas, Newfoundland. People were out early this morning going through debris, trying to find personal belongings, mementos, pictures, anything that they can salvage. Many people have lost their homes and everything with it, but they're trying to find those keepsakes. And they were out early this morning because, as they say in Newfoundland, you can get four seasons in one day, and I think we've already had two today, and we're expected to get up to 100 millimeters of rain by tomorrow morning. 
And that's going to be a problem because the ground is completely saturated. The water really has nowhere to go. And uh, everything is already wet and soaked, but uh, it can get worse. So there you have it uh, in the aftermath, uh, trying to clean up, trying to figure out which way is up and having to deal with more of uh, Mother Nature. Other big concern, obviously, we're hearing lots about inflation, specifically food inflation. You know, whether it's the uh, the price of energy, the price of housing, the price of uh, groceries, uh, what have you, it all seems to be heading northward. Uh, Deleuze uh, University, uh, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, has been commenting on this quite a bit. And here's where his thoughts are today on the price of food. Produce has been unbelievably volatile this year. And, and a weaker loony could actually make things worse, unfortunately. We're working on our forecast for 2023. We are really seeing uh, our 13th Canada's food price report on December 7th. So we're, we're actually including in our model uh, some of the data related to the currency. And we don't think it's going to be a favorable factor. All right. And uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, again, holding the keys to uh, the current government, yet is... Uh, well, begging, I guess, the Prime Minister to do something in regard to food prices. Not sure what can be done here. We want to make sure we, we get to the bottom of what's going on with the cost of food going up because we want to stop. We, we know that this is an area where families are really feeling the squeeze. And it's the one area where the prices have not started to come down. While in the other areas of inflation, we're seeing some movement, certainly not in food, though. That's where we're not seeing any movement at all. And that's deeply concerning because that's literally what people need to do, put food on the table. So that's that's our ultimate goal is get to the bottom of this so that we can stop it. All right. So, uh, again, not sure what can be done there, but obviously the rising cost of getting by is uh, becoming more and more of a concern and announcements today of a weaker loony uh, for today and on the horizon certainly is not uh, helping much. Uh, other big stories, obviously, the travel mandates announced yesterday that they would be dropping as of September 30th. We'll talk more about that coming up and the doctor shortages uh, that we're seeing across Canada and the latest out of Russia. Uh, that pipeline that delivers gas to the, race, the rest of Europe um, apparently has been sabotaged uh, and is uh, leaking. We're going to try to get to the bottom of that story sometime this afternoon as well. Here we are, what are we, over two and a half years past the beginning of this uh, global pandemic when they told us to go home. And since then, we have been talking and learning of you know, uh, the crisis in our healthcare system, weak links in the chain, and it's something that we really knew all along, but it took a global pandemic for the country to open up its eyes and see what dire uh, straits our, our Canadian healthcare system is in. And this just isn't the province of Ontario. Uh, during the height of the global pandemic, COVID-19, you might remember Premier Horgan, NDP Premier Horgan out of BC, was leading the charge of all of the provinces from east to west, uh, trying to get the, uh, the federal government to engage in this conversation. And they really just do not seem to be interested in talking about this. And uh, of course, now we have uh, the federal government picking up 22% of the tab of the province's health care, and the provinces are up to the rest. And it started uh, when Medicare started, it was 50-50. 
And you have to ask yourself, where, well, with the dental plan, are we heading for the same problem? They come in and say they're going to give all kinds of money. Then in the, in the end, it'll be left to the provinces to try to keep it up and running inadequate as it may be. Uh, the situation in Canada's ERs continues, and the provinces and the federal governments uh, just pointing at each other. Let's bring in Jamie Marocker, digital broadcast journalist for Global News, has done a whole pile of uh, research and uh, reporting on this and is with us now. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hope you're well as well. Are they? Are the provinces and the feds getting any closer to solving this issue, or at least finding a way forward? Honestly, it's um, so difficult to talk about because it's such a um, massive, massive file, and ultimately, it is a provincial file. You you talked about some of the numbers yep. right there, but because we're in this uh, emergency situation and we're seeing this staffing crisis particularly, you would think that at some point the federal government would jump in and kind of spearhead talks or discussions about funding, that sort of thing. And that's really what the experts say is needed. There's some direction needed at this point, because it's not just one province suffering, it's all of them. So is the federal government doing that? Well, we went to, you know, the person that you would think would have the answer to that, and that's Jean-Yves Duclos, our federal health minister. Mm-hmm. We asked him for a one-on-one sit-down. Um, unfortunately, he declined. Um, so we caught up with him in person, and we asked him a couple questions, and we really didn't get any answers. One of the, the big questions we had was, you know, you asked for real tangible results from the provinces, um, and, and it kind of hinges on giving those quote real tangible results then you'll give them more funding but he couldn't say exactly what those real tangible results um look like and also couldn't tell us where the cash that's already been promised is so we asked about the three billion dollars to hire family doctors where's that money gone Um, and we got no answer in fact the health minister uh walked away so there is this this disconnect. You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about this being a crisis. There's, there seems to be a sense of urgency from provincial leaders and federal leaders, um, but there's no quick fixes and there's no um, immediate fixes. And, and that's really what's needed at this point, because if we don't stop the hemorrhaging of staff, we're not going to be in a better place even a year from now. And what I find fascinating in all of this, Jamie, and I know it's unrelated, um, but, you know, here we are spending all of this time, and and I'm not against a dental care plan by any means, but here we are focusing on a dental care plan, which is loosely based on what the Medicare plan is, and who's to say we're not going to have the same problems down the road with that? So, you know, we need to obviously work on the template between the provinces and the feds before we even move forward on anything else new. Is that just common sense, or am I naive on this? No, no, I think there is a general consensus that there needs to be some sort of cohesion and some sort of, I want to say leadership, but I don't think it's really fair to say that because the provinces have their own leaders, but there needs to be somebody at the very top from the federal national level um, guiding these discussions. And I know that they met over the premiers and um, the prime minister and the health minister, they met over the summer, but it doesn't seem anything's come of that. I will also say there are provinces that are doing things to try and better their specific situations. Uh, for example, Saskatchewan recently announced new investments to bolster health staffing. Manitoba budgeted this year for a special task force to address surgical and diagnostic backlogs. Ontario is increasing the number of publicly covered surgeries performed at private clinics. 
Prince Edward Island has been trying to adapt more team-based approaches to primary care and kind of taking care of things in in um, in society before they end up in the ER. And Alberta has also been investing uh, significantly into reducing surgical backlogs. But there have been a lot of criticism that says none of these things that I just talked about are going to solve the root of the issue. And the root yeah. of the issue is the mass exodus that we have seen um, in healthcare, in all portions of healthcare, specifically uh, frontline workers, and the retention of the workers that we are bringing in. Because right now the stopgap is really costly, and that is to bring in private nursing staff. And unfortunately, these hospitals can't afford it on their own. And mm. though you know funding isn't the end-all, be-all, there needs to be a plan behind it, and other things like data collection, the national database, that sort of thing. Um, there, there is this need for more money because this stopgap of these private nurses costs so much money. Well, you know, you think about it, and most of the people don't have to rely on the healthcare system. And touch wood, you know, we can go through that our, our life with that. And it's only really a small portion of people that are using it. However, you think of all the people that work in the healthcare system. You know, people are wondering, gee, if I'm a patient, do I want to go into this system? Well, imagine if you had to work in it, how difficult it is. Oh yeah, these these workers like throughout the series, and it's been um, seven weeks, I believe. We have met with these workers who are just, you know, they're worked to their bone. It's yeah, they're fried. It's a tireless job. It's a thankless job. Patients are so frustrated, and unfortunately, a lot of the time, they take it out on frontline staff, not meaning to, but you can imagine the frustration if you're waiting twenty plus hours in the emergency room and you're in pain or you're sick. Um, and these frontline staffers are doing what they can with what they have. And we do have to keep that in mind, right? Jamie Marocker with us, digital broadcast journalist, Global News. Jamie, great series. Thanks so much for the time. Be, lo- uh, be well. Take care. You know, you ask yourself, uh, if we don't want to go into the hospital, if the hospital system, the healthcare system is in such dire need and we don't really use it all the time, only a select few do, imagine if you have to do that for a living. Every day you're faced with this. Every day you've got to deal with this issue that nobody seems to be able to or want to solve. Um, you know, we, we need to be as excited in fixing this system as we are as excited when we introduced it or when we introduced dental or whatever. But, you know, it's like once the shininess is gone, the feds don't really seem interested anymore. And that's not solving the problem, as Jamie suggested. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, I think we've talked to Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, three times, or this will be the third time, on the Coyote situation. Uh, the last time we chatted, a third, a third one had been put down, and uh, we're hoping that uh, things might die down a bit. And unfortunately, not the case. A fourth has been uh, removed in Burlington after it is stalked and chased a resident. Marianne Mead Ward, mayor of Burlington, with us now. Marianne, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. All right. So as I mentioned, we thought after the third, uh, things might slow down. Not the case. What happened here? We knew that the attacks were all uh, by a family of coyotes. We, what we didn't know is how big that family was. And hmm. this uh, fourth coyote was in exactly in the two-kilometer range of, of, a, of the territory of that family. We believe it was part of that pack. 
and was exhibiting the same characteristics as the other coyotes, approaching uh, people, no fear, uh, being very aggressive, and uh, would have bitten another person. Uh, but the uh, but in fact, it approached the the uh, our certified wildlife uh, professional who uh, had his gun on him, and he mm. he stopped him from biting him. So, uh, and you you confirmed this is all basically the same area where the other attacks have occurred. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, we know we have coyotes all over the city, and and uh, the attacks are occurring in a highly localized area. The work of one family of coyotes. We think that all of them are now have now been removed, but our staff and the wildlife professional are remaining on high alert to make sure. Uh, they are patrolling the streets. They are making sure that there are no further. Uh, there's no further risk to the public. And uh, male, female. Does it matter what the gender is here? Are they both as aggressive if they have been uh, obviously approached or fed by humans? The issue is that yeah, that the issue is when they lose their fear, they begin to see humans as a source of food. And uh, we've been advised by the by the experts, the people that have been advising us that the coyotes really were biting to get attention and, and essentially say, feed me. And the one that was uh, just recently removed, it was actually approaching the wildlife uh, it was. professional when that person it, had to it shoot. It was, and, and he, for his own safety, but obviously he's there to protect the entire yeah. community. He had to take uh, to, had to take quick action. We we do we do think this is the the last of it. Uh, we really do hope that it is because nobody takes any pleasure whatsoever in no. wildlife. It, it's been traumatic for uh, all of our animal lovers, including me. Uh, it's been traumatic for the community to um, to be, especially the people who've been bitten. It's been traumatic uh, to wonder if it's safe in your own backyard, and and so the community has really gone through. Uh, a lot of pain in the last uh, couple of weeks, and and we do hope this is the end of it. And and in terms of what comes next, we 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 have a major communications campaign going out in a couple of days across the city, advising people what what happened here and how we can prevent it. And the simplest thing is to get people to stop feeding wildlife, and that includes cute little chipmunks. Hmm. Uh, that you want to have run up to you and maybe get a photo with them because they become uh, they become attractants to other wildlife and then the other wildlife see humans feeding. Uh, coyotes are smart and they see uh, they they start to learn that that humans are a source of food uh, for them either directly or indirectly. So that behavior has had has to stop and we believe that it was happening in this uh, in this neighborhood. And and that's why the coyotes attacked there because we still have coyotes all over the city, and so, and the attacks have occurred in one very localized uh, area within a two-kilometer range. So, Marianne, what makes you think this might be it? And of course, you don't know. But what makes you think this time? Well, I'm hoping that it, that uh, human behavior will change as a result of this. Mm. That people will finally get the message. It was never okay to feed wildlife. We do have existing bylaws uh, prohibiting that. We can issue a ticket uh, to, uh, we've now recently upped it to $300. We, uh, in the past, could have taken you to court if it was really egregious, so over and above the ticket, uh, fine for $5,000, which we've now increased to $100,000 for, obviously, for the worst offenders. So we are doing everything we can to send the message 
that this is not okay, and we will take action if we if we find that people are still doing this because it puts not only uh, the animal clearly at risk, they can't be retrained to, to fear people yeah. after they've lost that fear, but it puts the entire community at risk. So uh, where do you draw the line here? Uh, because obviously there's people that are bird feeders. There's people that I got people in the neighborhood that are feeding squirrels as I as I had a guy here today to try to get one out of my attic. Um, so where do you draw the line there as far as a bylaw? I mean, what are you allowed to feed and not feed? Uh, the line is drawn at birds, and yeah. you are required under the bylaw to keep your bird feeder in uh, good shape and to clean up. So if mm-hmm. there are uh, bird, f- if there's bird food that drops onto the ground, that becomes a source of food for other animals. You're required to clean that up. So, so that's where we draw the line. Uh, you can't feed squirrels or raccoons or cute little chipmunks. Uh, yeah. You've you've got to, you know, the people have got to stop that. And you can't already do it in our parks, um, but we we don't allow it in on private property either. Now, you talked about coming up with a a campaign and such. Any chance of something like this going Halton wide or even into Hamilton? Because obviously we're in the same area and they go from point A to point B, I'm sure, all the time. Well, that was one of the suggestions from the Ministry of Natural Resources, and and they have offered their assistance for a more region-wide communication. So we're in discussions about that. We we know that coyotes don't uh, respect municipal boundaries, uh, and it is a halt and wide problem. And and in fact, you know, we have heard of bites in Niagara, in mm-hmm. Ottawa, of course, in Vancouver, uh, very recently, and then the tragic death a number of years ago in Cape Breton. So. So this is an issue that is is facing communities across the country, and 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 the you know so there needs to be significant education for sure across our region because I don't think people realize when they're feeding an animal that looks cute and sweet and harmless that they are actually jeopardizing uh, other animals which aren't so harmless to us. Yeah, it's not animal behavior; it's human behavior. Uh, so uh, here we go again, uh, Marianne. What's the message? What is uh, what are you trying to say to the people of, of the whole area, not just the city of Burlington? Well, I, I want to reassure people that I do think we've immediate we've eliminated the immediate threat to our community at great cost to to the coyotes, and and I know people feel very sad about that. I do too. Uh, but we have to send the message that people have to stop feeding animals, have to, you know, properly dispose of their food, clean up their properties so they don't become havens for dens and nesting. And all of that working together will keep us safe going forward. Marianne Mead Ward with us, Mayor of the City of Burlington. Another coyote has been removed uh, after it uh, went towards a wildlife professional. Uh, hopefully this is the last of all of it, but uh, it's something they're monitoring. Marianne, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. We have impact, not something that usually makes those at NASA, you know, jump for joy. But I guess in this case, uh, yeah, mission accomplished. Uh, a mission to hit an asteroid as a potential solution if one ever threatens Earth has worked. And let's bring you Orbach's lecture, Department of Physics, Col- uh, Department of Physics, College of Engineering and Physical Sciences, University of Guelph, co-founder of Royal City Science and one half of Orbach's and Pepper do science and educational science-based platform. Orbach's is with us. Orbach's, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you today, Scott? 
I'm doing good, thanks so much. Now, it's not often, as I mentioned in the preamble, that when you say impact, the people at NASA or such as yourself get excited. But this is mission accomplished here. Uh, in layperson's terms, explains what explain to us what's what's happened here. Well, it's an interesting thing that we we that has been attempted to be done and was achieved successfully. Uh, the idea was that. You know, we live in a, a, a solar system that's full of asteroids always zinging past us and comets, and the, the worry is always there that now that we can see these things, what if one was to actually strike the Earth? Would there be a danger there to, to people? Um, so the DART program, the uh, Double Asteroid Redirection Test, the idea was can we shoot a satellite at a distant asteroid and hit it hard enough with something big enough to push it off course? And when will we know if it worked or not? Or did it? Well, it hit. That's great. That's the first good step. It did was it move? In, it, yeah, it was in flight for uh, about a year, actually. Um, it found the target, which is uh, Dimorphos, which is just a, it's a, an asteroid that's about the size of a football field. Um, and we struck it. So now it's going to take a little while of monitoring to see how much that changes the orbit of that asteroid. But first stage is achieved. It actually struck and it hit it with a speed that's fast enough, about uh, 22,000, uh, yeah, about 22,000 kilometers, um, fast enough to actually push it off its course, hopefully. So um, I hope I have my analogy straight. So we basically hit a football field with a school bus. Is that yeah, accurate? More or less. It's actually even smaller. It's more like the size of a vending machine. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah. um, so is it about the speed or how much and the energy it hits it or how much weight it is carrying when you're in space? It, it, Does that matter? It's absolutely both. So uh, it, it, the idea would be if we get something going fast enough, it doesn't have to be huge. So the actual, uh, uh, like I said, it's, it's, about, it's about the size of a vending machine. It's around 600 kilograms or so, which is heavy. Um, but we're able to slam it in at 22,000 kilometers an hour. Uh, <laughs> that carries with it enough energy to hopefully redirect this thing. And, and this is the idea is that it's not about destroying this asteroid. It's about redirecting it, just pushing it off course. And uh, as you said, that will take time to measure. How long will that take before we know whether this was a success or not? We should know relatively quickly. I would expect to see news coming through probably over the next few days to the next few weeks. The issue is is that it is 11 million kilometers away. Um, This flew through space for a year to get to its target. So it'll take a little bit of time to get that information back, and then we'll have to sit and wait to see really what the long-term effects of something like this are. But if everything goes to calculation, I would say uh, it was mission success. If something like this was to happen, would we have that kind of time, mathematical time, to figure this out? Well, you see, that's the worry, right? So the idea would be that, that we are monitoring asteroids um, at very far distances away from the Earth. And there's an actual um, planetary asteroid defense system that's set up in place to monitor these types of things. So right now, we're not seeing that anything's really coming up on the, you know, quote-unquote radar that we need to be worried about anytime in the future, um, in the immediate future at the very least. But should something come up, this is the first step in hopefully being able to have a defense plan that we can activate. So why would they be doing this now? Is it a significant threat or is this just smart pre-planning? I think it's pre-planning. You know, uh, we've seen so much 
acceleration in terms of technology going into space uh, with the James Webb launching earlier this summer with the Artemis mm. program that's supposed to be launching to the moon sometime this year. Um, and there's just this, we've, as we've seen information technology explode, we've seen that tech has gone right along with it. So it'll be interesting to see how many more new and interesting ideas for experiments kind of come down the pipes. Uh, obviously heading back to the moon and then back to and then on to Mars, uh, space stations, that sort of thing. Is this the sort of uh, uh, procedure that's just going to have to be done or or maintenance that has to be followed in order to get to that next level of space exploration? Is there that much yeah. stuff flying around up there? Yeah, there, you know, there really is, and it's, it's getting to be a problem. You know, over the last 60 years of, of our space flight, uh, or actually only more like 50, um, you, you know, we, we've built up this debris in space, even just something as simple as, as the satellites that sort of clog up around the atmosphere of the Earth. The more stuff we throw out there, the more stuff there is. But even that said, you know, the asteroid belt and asteroids, there's hundreds of thousands of these things sort of out there circulating around. As we move to further and further planets, and as we try to populate further and further extraterrestrial regions, we'll need a way to sort of be able to direct those celestial bodies. Um, do we will will cleaning up space become an issue as we move forward with this? Well, you'll need something that is going to have to somehow shove these out into an area where they can burn up or what have you. Well, you know, in terms of things like satellites and, and things around the Earth, absolutely. Um, the further out you get, there's a lot of space out there, and it goes on for, for a really yeah. long time. So there, we have yet to sort of overly pollute the further reaches of space. But around our own planet, yeah, I mean, there's there's rocket uh, husks out there. There's satellites out there. There's There's a lot of space junk that's out there that will eventually need to be cleaned up. Won't, isn't there something in place or should there be something in place that once these, uh, items have, 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 you know, gone past their shelf life that somehow they, you have to dispose of them, somehow you have to, uh, figure a way to, to, to blow them up for lack of a better phrase. There, there, there is. I mean, and now there are people are a lot more aware of this issue now, but you also have to figure, you know, these first things were kind of going up in the, the early sixties, right? Yeah. And I don't think the foresight was there that, you know, literally right. just 50 years later, 60 years later, we'd have hundreds or thousands of these things up there. So, I mean, the, the equipment that's going up now, and it, it is a big problem, and uh, people are keenly aware of it and working towards it. But, I mean, the bigger problem is just dealing with the last few generations worth. The latest in space, Orbach's with his lecture, Department of Physics, College, uh, College of Engineering and Physical Science, University of Guelph. Thank you so much for the time. Fascinating no stuff. Problem, Be well. All right. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. I want to talk about the falling loony and prices going up as a result. Uh, also, about a uh, we're hearing early, uh, early uh, information about this uh, pipeline, uh, the Nord Stream Pipeline. One has been nicked. Uh, some are saying it's sabotage. Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor of Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is here now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Doing very well. Uh, really quickly, let's start with the loony. It is falling. Um, what is that based on? What is the reason for that? Does that ha is that tied to our natural resources? In part, but I don't want to blame it only on that. It is, it's a flight to safety. Um, there is a risk of worldwide recession, increasing 
currently investors believe there's going to be a global recession. And when you have a situation like that and all the uncertainty, the Ukraine war and the uncertainty about, um, you know, energy, geopolitical tensions and so forth, and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates very aggressively, you get a flight to safety. And what the 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 law, the you know, the, the wisdom of large crowds, that is to say, people with money around the world, if you are looking out on the world and you're seeing all kinds of a heightened un- insecurity and uncertainty and recession, where do you want your money to go? You want it to be in the safest haven imaginable. And it is widely considered whether some people that don't are anti-American don't like it, whether they like it or not, doesn't matter. People with wealth around the world in every country, every nationality, see the United States as the safest haven of all. You're not mm. going to have your money expropriated there. You're not going to be kidnapped in the middle of the night like in China or Russia or dis- just disappear. And so we're caught in the crossfire. Yes, it wouldn't be it wouldn't have gone down so much if we were exporting more oil and gas. Uh, because that has a big impact on the value. So there are things we have done that is making it perhaps a little bit worse because we're suppressing uh, the production and sale and export of oil and gas, natural gas. But uh, this is a phenomenon going on around the world. The U.S. dollar is appreciating against just about every other currency, including All right, so... We're hearing uh, about the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, which uh, Russia supplies gas uh, to the rest of Europe and such through, uh, that it is uh, leaking, and then there's chats of sabotage. What do you know about this story? Well, I'm reading the uh, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and they said, uh, this is a direct quote, Swedish seismologist reported detecting underwater explosions Hmm. on Monday, three separate explosions on the two separate pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and 2. Um, the uh, uh, Ukrainian government and the Polish government have both said that Russia has sabotaged these pipelines, which they own. Um, and they're, uh, it certainly wasn't the Europeans. They desperately need the gas. We know that. Uh, so why would gonna... Russia blow up its own pipeline? I think it's a sign of the absolute desperation uh, facing uh, Mr. Putin, President Putin. Um, you know, every article I'm reading, um, and I'm talking in mainstream, reputable media, and Russians themselves writing blogs, he is running out of options. You know, there's huge resistance to the call-up of 300,000 more soldiers. There's incredibly low morale. People are deserting in the Russian army in Poland. He's losing to the Ukrainian army. People are publicly elites in Russia are publicly condemning him. Uh, I just think he is increasingly desperate. And so he's trying to raise the, the pressure on Europe so that they will put the squeeze on Ukraine to compromise and sign a deal. I believe he desperately wants a deal to save face, to save political face so he can go back to his own people and say, hey, you know, uh, this war that uh, or whatever he calls it, he calls it an excursion or something, um, it, whatever it was, it, we, we, it produced benefits. Here's the benefit. And he waves a peace treaty agreement. And I think he's trying to put huge pressure on Germany and France and other countries in Europe to uh, because they're backing Ukraine with money and weapons, as is the U.S. And so I think what they're trying to do is saying, look, you're really going to be you. The Europeans are really going to be in a pickle because these pipelines are now um, damaged and cannot be used. They're not usable. So there's no other uh, you know, you got to look for the who's going to benefit from this. And the only beneficiary possibly 
is is Russia. There's no benefit to the Europeans. They want that mm. gas. And uh, so this is a continuation of using energy uh, to weaponize energy against the Europeans. Uh, new polling out says Canadians uh, are questioning our uh, our energy policy, want to see Canada more self-sufficient and help others yes. get off more uh, pollutant forms of fossil fuels with our clean natural gas. The Prime yes. Minister said a while ago there is no business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. I've been meaning to ask you about this. Is there or is there not? I believe he's wrong. I believe I'll say it again. I believe he is wrong. Now, people can say, well, how do you know, you know, smarty pants professor? Well, I've been reading about what they're doing over in Europe where they desperately need LNG, which is liquefied natural gas. And yes, he is right that it takes five years to build an LNG terminal on land. And but what the Germans are doing is they're building what are called floating terminals. They're taking old uh, 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 energy carriers, in other words, uh, tankers. And they're floating them and offshore, right offshore of Germany. And they're turning them into essentially floating LNG terminals. Hmm. And you can build them in less than 12 months. They have one coming on stream in just a couple of months time and more under development, which will be on stream by next spring. So his argument, although he didn't unpack it, was it'll take five years and by the t- to build a, an LNG terminal on the east coast of Canada. By then, the war will long be over in Ukraine, so there's no business case. So I've got two responses to the prime minister. Number one, it is not the job of the prime minister to make to determine or approve the business case of every business and company that decides to expand its product line or open a new Tim Hortons franchise or open a, a new factory for cars. This, these are private capital investments by private investors. They make the risk analysis. This is what I teach for 35 years in my course, in the strategy course, making capital investments. It is not the prime minister's job. Nowhere in any statute of our country does it state it is the role of the prime minister or the minister of finance to approve the business capital expansion plans of any business in our country. So it's not his job to determine whether or not there's a business case. Let the private investors do that. If they make a bad bet, they lose their money. And that's what rich people do. They lose money sometimes on bad investments. Happens all the time. Businesses do go do fail. Secondly, even if we pretended that the prime minister has the skills and the and the responsibility to make the business case, he does not, he has not looking, or, or at least he's ignoring the uh, actual evidence of what the Germans are doing, building these floating LNG terminals. And right now, as we speak, the two largest exporters to of natural gas to Europe are, oh my goodness, the United States of America right next door to us and Gatter in the Middle East. And apparently they're pumping enormous increases in LNG to Germany and Europe, which needs it desperately. So it can be done. It is being done, not a theory, not a hypothesis. It's an actuality. And so the prime minister, with respect, is wrong. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University on Energy and the Falling Looney. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, new polling from Angus Reid shows that the Conservatives are leading over the Liberals, and some of that could be coming from the PPC supporters and also maybe explaining why we're seeing some increases in the NDP as well. Let's bring in John Rowe, Research Associate, Angus Reid Institute, and is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I hope you're well too, Scott. So many chatted prior to uh, uh, Pierre Polyevra winning the Conservative leadership. My goodness, this is uh, divisive. Uh, it's going to be combative uh, when uh, Justin Trudeau and, the, and Pierre Polyev meet in the uh, House of Commons and such. Yet now we're seeing a increase uh, in the Conservatives. How do you explain that, considering uh, what we are the reputation so far? Let's say. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time uh, in three years that we've seen such a large lead over the Conservatives. So we have the Conservatives at 37% of vote intention currently, with the Liberals at 30% trailing behind. And we haven't seen a gap between these two parties this big since 2019. Uh, And one thing that we've kind of noted is that the people who voted for the PPC last year, a lot of them now say they will vote Conservative. Over like 75% of them say that they kind of moved their vote over to the Conservative Party. And nationally, we've seen kind of the support for the PPC, which got 5% in the last election, shrink down to 1%. And what about the NDP? Are they seeing any gains as a result of all of this and people perhaps questioning the Liberals? Well, I think we typically see support for the NDP at about one in five, like throughout kind of all our polls throughout the kind of last three years, they kind of hover around that level. And right now they're about 20%. Uh, And typically... What ends up happening, it seems, is that a lot of those those people that say they're going to vote NDP tend to migrate to the Liberal Party come election time, because oftentimes the NDP doesn't actually get to that high of a, a vote in the actual election. Uh, so for now, they're at one in five, uh, and perhaps that's partially due to maybe people being upset at the Liberal Party, uh, but whether or not they can kind of maintain that support through a, a federal election, whether that happens <laughs> four years from now, when it, I guess it's supposed to be scheduled, or three, three years from now, but... Uh, remains to be seen what about the leaders this is obviously the parties how do the leaders fare uh competing against each other well by favorability trudeau's been viewed somewhat like unfavorably so his disapproval has been around three and five canadians for the last like more or less the last three years kind of excluding a period during the pandemic where a lot of political leaders saw their favorability improve kind of during the somewhat early months of the pandemic uh and comparatively polyev uh, sees kind of about a similar level of unfavorability. So he's seen unfavorable by half of the population uh, and favorably by one third. So it's it, it's somewhat similar. Trudeau's maybe got a little bit higher of unfavorable numbers. Polyev still has like 14% of the people who say they don't really know enough to say right now. But for Polyev, that negative number is somewhat uh, not, maybe not good news because if you compare him to Sheer and O'Toole, both those guys had, when they were coming in, had much lower un- unfavorable impressions from the regular population. That's fascinating. Um, so uh, what do you think the chances are of us seeing a new liberal leader before? And of course, I'm asking you a question you cannot answer. But uh, what do you think the chances are of the liberals picking a new leader before the next election? Uh, if it is the prime minister that Canadians are unsure about? Yeah, it's one of these questions that has come up quite a bit, I think, within the Liberal Party itself. And obviously, there's been a lot of discussion in the media kind of centered around whether or not Christian Freeland would be the kind of next in line. 
Uh, and there were stories as recently, I think it was like two weeks ago, I think, where uh, basically Trudeau came out to his or came to his cabinet and said, yes, I'm going to run in the next election. Meanwhile, Krista Freeland saying that she's trying to or there was rumors out there that she was in line for a petition, position with NATO. So it's I, I would lean that probably we're going to see Trudeau in the next election just because that's what he's come out and said to cabinet. But obviously, I have no inside information on that. Obviously, uh, a different world since 2015 when the prime minister was first elected. Uh, priorities have changed, uh, especially in a pandemic world with a lot of them uh, really focusing on on economic issues. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what the big issues are for can- uh, for Canadians right now. Yeah, so we uh, asked, we kind of asked this pretty regularly, what, what people what do people think are the top issues kind of facing the country? And right now, cost of living is kind of far and away the top choice. Like three in five Canadians believe that's a top issue uh, of this list that we present to them, and they can pick up to three from this list. Uh, healthcare, 45%, that's like at second. And climate change and housing affordability are third and fourth at about three in 10 of the population selecting those. So far and away, people are concerned about cost of living, and healthcare is somewhat next on the list, uh, go behind kind of cost of living and yeah, it's it's kind of incredible just to see how much one issue kind of is front of mind for Canadians at this point in time. Again, uh, last elections, uh, a lot of social issues, not a lot of economic issues. Obviously, that has changed now. Um, um, we know that uh, the Liberals poll extremely well with female voters. We know the Prime Minister is a self-described feminist. Can 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 dividing genders win the liberals this election can you win an election dividing the country over gender well it's it's been kind of consistent that uh women over the age of 54 are somewhat the strongest supporters for the liberals kind of in our polling we always see that they support the liberals at a higher rate than other kind of demographics uh and as you said there has been somewhat of a gender divide and especially now kind of with polyev as the leader men are kind of more moving over to the conservative side more so than we even saw with uh o'toole um right now around half of men of all ages say that they're going to vote conservative so it's it i don't know whether or not like having one gender on your side will kind of lead to an election victory. I know Mm -hmm. that typically people over the age of 54 are just much more likely to vote than younger Canadians, uh, where Polyev especially is doing well, especially among young men particularly. So whether or not he can kind of mobilize that vote to kind of help him push him, push him over the top into prime minister position. I don't know. Do you think the Liberals and the NDP will split a large portion of the vote next election? I mean, that happens anyway. Um, but if people are uh, disenfranchised with the Liberals, could the NDP pick that up? Could you see them becoming official opposition? I I, I, I have a hard time kind of seeing that. Uh, and this is yeah. just my, my own kind of perce- perception on things, not necessarily anything that we've kind of looked into. Uh, and I think it just kind of comes down to that that split you always see where it's like, yes, like the NDP kind of poll much higher than they always kind of actually finish in our polls, like as far yeah. as their election yeah. results. And I think the problem is, is typically for the NDP is they have to convince voters that a vote for them doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to hurt uh, or in- increase the chances of the Conservative Party winning a riding, winning the election. And I think what happens is that the people kind of swing between the two parties and whichever has the best chance of winning in that particular riding. There's a lot of people who go, okay, well, 
I don't want the conservatives to come in, so I'm going to vote liberal or I'm going to vote NDP, depending on which candidate has a better chance of winning. So I don't know. It's hard to say. I think the way the liberals are positioned right now, it'd be hard, I think, for me to see the NDP coming in and becoming the official opposition. Uh, but I mean, it's a long time now and between now and a, I guess the next scheduled election. So a lot of things can change. John Rowe with us, Research Associate, Angus Reid Institute. New polling from Angus Reid shows the Conservatives leading over the Liberals. Uh, John, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talked about this last week. The province's education minister says he has asked the Ontario College of Teachers to review professional conduct provisions amid controversy surrounding an Oakville, Ontario teacher's attire. Uh, images have gone viral online and in the media in recent days, appearing to show a teacher at Oakville Trafalgar High School wearing large prosthetic breasts in class. Where does this go moving forward, and what are the responsibilities of the school board here? Let's bring in Howard Levitt, senior partner at Howard Levitt. He is with us now. Howard, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Uh, this story um, uh, came about, uh, I remember my son talking about it, just after school started, and it took at least three weeks before it started uh, to hit the mainstream media. Uh, the school board's uh, keeping this, school board keeping this, the home school board keeping this pretty quiet up until now, uh, citing reasons of, uh, you know, this person's uh, personal protection and uh, around transitioning and such. Is this about uh, a teacher who is transitioning or is this about a professional who isn't meeting certain standards when it comes to proper attire what is this case where is it going this is about a school board that's abdicated responsibility that's what this case is about yeah it's about a teacher who's giving a big shove it to everybody laughing at us acting in a way that's entirely inappropriate and a school board that's so woke and politically correct that they're not prepared to do what they should be doing and stop it Many would say, Howard, you are victimizing this person by saying that. I'm playing, de- I'm playing devil's advocate here. What's your response? <laughs> well, I'm laughing. I guess that's my best response. Um, let's assume you're working in a law firm and you have very good legal credentials and there's nothing wrong with your skills. You come in in shorts, a dirty T-shirt, and moccasins every day to work and then have to see clients. Um, I think that lawyer would be fired in a heartbeat and no client would, very few would attend to them. You're teaching values to young children and it's got nothing to do with being cisgender or trans or anything else. It's a matter of dressing appropriately in a workplace. And that's all this is. And she's dressing or he's dressing inappropriately in the workplace. That's the, the beginning and end of the story. And somehow the school board is letting this person do it. Uh, Now this has been referred to the Ontario College of Teachers, says the education minister. What happens there? Generally, when things are referred to the Ontario College of Teachers, nothing happens. So that's what I predictably predict. But unless there's enough of a public hue and cry, then the teachers might say, "Mm, maybe we're... Pushing up, the wrong, uh, pushing up the wrong stone in the wrong hill, and we will actually do something here. But anybody sensible will say, 
that any employer is entitled to enforce standards. It's got nothing to do with whether or not the person is trans or being anti-trans or pro-trans or exhibiting their trans identity. Of course, you contribute to your trans identity, but you can do it on your own time. If you're in the workplace, you don't have to suppress your trans identity. You don't have to dress garishly and in a way that's frankly makes a mockery of it. I'm surprised, Howard, the board thought that nobody would pay attention, that nobody would speak up, that they thought everything was fine. And we saw the same thing with the York Regional School Board, different issue, not wanting to teach the Queen's uh, funeral and the historic value of that. They since changed their stance on it and eventually did. But again, same question. I can't believe people make these decisions and think that no one's going to notice. Because the teachers' unions are so politically correct and boards of education in this province are cowed, C-O-W-E-D, and as opposed to the other spelling, and therefore are just play obeisance to the doctrine of political correctness and are afraid because the person says they're trans that therefore you can't criticize anything that they say is an expression of trans identity. And that's not really what the Human Rights Code does. You're allowed to express your trans identity or your gender identity, as it's more accurately described, or at least more broadly described, but you have to in a way that conforms to broader social norms. What if, for example, the person said, to express my full trans identity, I, have to, I can walk barefoot, in the, barefoot around the school. Well, that would be permitted, obviously, even though it's their personal expression of trans identity. It may well be some person's, and this is no different than that. What could this school board have done differently? What should they have done differently? Take off the massive prosthetic breast with the fake nipples and comport yourself properly if you want to wear... If you're born a man and want to, and are, are now have come out as a woman, that's okay. You can wear your hair long and do and fit in with the uniform policy of the school for women. But you can't make up your own costume, especially when it's highly sexualized. Is this going away, Howard? There's been protests over the weekend. Do you think this will just slowly go away, or this does this have to be dealt with? Well, it depends on whether this person continues. Uh, dressing this way. If they do, then there'll continue to be opposition to it. It'll continue to be a news story. If the person dresses more modestly, then it'll go away quickly. And you have to wonder, is this helping or hurting the teacher? What about their feelings in all of this? This particular teacher? Yes. I think this particular teacher's having us all on. They know exactly what they're doing. They're manipulating mm. public opinion and they're manipulating their gender identity to make some sort of a statement, but it's unacceptable. Howard Levitt with us, senior partner. Howard Levitt talking about the Oakville teacher, which is gaining a lot of attention, and now before the Ontario College of Teachers in regard to dress. Howard, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Oh, you as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Russia continues to threaten Ukraine uh, with uh, referendums and taking of or annexing areas of Ukraine and also threatening with nukes. This, as we're hearing today, that uh, that natural gas pipeline Nord Stream uh, is leaking. And it, uh, many are saying, or some are saying, that it is sabotage. 
on Russia's part as um, uh, Scandinavian countries detected explosions in and around uh, the pipeline. Let's bring in Stephen Sedman, Professor uh, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, author of For Kin or Country, Xenophobia, Nationalism and War. Stephen is with us now, Stephen Sedman. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, thanks so much. First, Stephen, what can you tell us? What do you know about the situation with this pipeline, which is obviously at the heart of all of the discussions regarding the energy crisis in Europe and such? Now it is apparently leaking, uh, apparently an explosion, and some are suspecting Russian sabotage. Why would they do that? What, do you th- what, what are your thoughts on what's happening? Your guess is honestly as good as mine. We don't really know anything about what's going on here. We just know that there's a gas leak, and we don't know what caused it. We don't know who caused it, if it was caused by anybody else. We don't know what's really driving this. Could it be that the Russians are trying to make it harder, you know, create an energy crisis to deepen its or strengthen its leverage over Europe? That's possible. Could somebody else have done it to make things interesting? Certainly. I have no idea. Uh, why would Russia, and, and that's the initial uh, thought, and again, none of this is proven at this point, but uh, you know, after hearing explosions, many thought that it was Russia sabotaging its own pipeline. Why would it just not turn off the top tap? Is that not good enough? I have no idea. Yeah. I think uh, there are other things we could talk about where I have more opinions. This stuff right now is just completely up in the air. All right. Uh, Russia continues to threaten Ukraine, uh, referendums, uh, talking about annexing mm-hmm. different parts of the country and such. Uh, is this because Putin feels he is continually being backed into a corner? Is this coming to a head? I definitely think this is very important. It's definitely something he's doing because he's desperate that he is losing the war. And so if you can convert the territory that they already have into Russian territory, then efforts to take that back, that territory, could then be, in his mind anyway, uh, can be seen as an attack upon Russia as opposed to a, a, you know, a, a defensive struggle by the Ukrainians. So this is one way for him to signal to everyone that he, this is much more serious. The thing is, is one of the questions I've been asking about Vladimir Putin for the past eight years or so is how implausible can pl- implausible deniability be and be still useful? The thing is, nobody buys these referendums being legitimate, particularly given that their voting tallies are somewhere in the order of 97, 98, 99%. So nobody buys that this is a legitimate referendum. Uh, It has even less credibility than the sham referendum that was in Crimea in 2014. So he can try to say this is Russian territory. See, we have the votes. Uh, But this might be for domestic consumption because it's really not going to play anywhere else in the world. Is claiming this territory, is that a big enough prize for all of this? Was it worth it? Uh, well, it's certainly not worth it because they had a, a fair amount of this territory at the outside of, of the February. Yeah. Remember that it, that in 2014, the Russians seized Crimea in an opportunistic moment and then basically created separatist movements in the far edges of Ukraine closest to Russia. And most of this, the conflict right now is on those far edges. Crimea, there's been attacks back and forth, but what's really been uh, the heart of the conflict has been the Ukrainians now making progress and getting back some of the territory the Russians seized recently, and maybe getting back the territory they seized since 2014. And so he's trying to stop that and try to end this conflict maybe with some glimmerings of a victory that we, hey, we've defended our, our territory We've saved all these poor Russians who are being oppressed by the Ukrainians, yada, yada, yada. But again, 
it doesn't have a lot of credibility. Will these territorial issues lead to more nukes? In other words, if he doesn't get what he wants, he will continue to threaten with nuclear warfare. Well, I think that the, the making these territories Russian makes the threats a little little more credible. It makes them a little more valid because, you know, the United States might respond to an attack upon Alaska or Hawaii with uh, the threat of nuclear weapons. That's one of the things that deters attacks upon the United States. And he's trying to make these territories that have belonged to Ukraine for, well, ever since uh, Ukraine became independent in 1991, he's trying to make these territories as if they're equivalent to that. But again, it required for that to deter, for that to deter the Ukrainians, or for that to, to stop us from supporting Ukrainians, we'd have to believe that at least a little bit that these territories are are Russian when they're not. Hmm. And so he's trying to signal this, but it takes two sides uh, to believe it. He can't just believe it himself and inflict that reality upon us. Again, I, I think this is so implausible uh, that it's really not going to make that much of a difference. But it does serve to make his nuclear threats a little little bit more uh, justified. Not not very justified, but just a little bit more. Uh, obviously, Putin calling up, looking for 300,000 new troops. First time since World War II he's gone to these measures, uh, triggering protests there, and uh, and, and, an ex- and perhaps an exodus of, of people uh, leaving Russia. Uh, the early stages of this, Putin seemed to have Russian support. Is that waning? Is this a turning point asking for those 300,000 troops? I think it's an act of desperation. I don't think he wanted to do it. I think this is why it's been delayed for so long. And the early footage of this shows that the domestic costs are going to be much higher than the uh, military gains, that they're handing rifles and uniforms to people who are going directly into battle with very little training. So the first thing they do is surrender. We already see the Ukrainians showing uh, new people surrendering after being in the military for a week. They're not going to be militarily effective. But it may be his own domestic struggles from his right wing that he has people who are more militaristic than him pushing him to do more, hmm. uh, but it's not going to make a difference on the battlefield, at least as far as all the experts think, but it will raise the costs at home. And even though he's very successful at repressing people, repression is costly. The more people that are upset, then the more he has to repress, then that makes things harder for himself and harder for his friends. Stephen Sadman with us, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You know, it's amazing. For the longest time, uh, Canadians uh, were just kind of in denial about our Canadian in- uh, energy industry. Lost was the um, desire for Canadians to be self-sufficient, energy self-sufficient. Lost was the idea that we could take our clean, for example, liquid natural gas and supply that to real polluters uh, that are burning coal, or we certainly know what's going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the weaponization of natural gas you know there's a time when no one seemed to care about any of that stuff and then all of a sudden there was a global pandemic and life completely changed and uh we are where we are now with a russian invasion of ukraine and what we see so in a in a poll a strong majority of canadians believe that and uh, liquid natural gas can help improve energy security help us to be self-sufficient and of course help the rest of the world uh you know even if we have less than two percent of greenhouse gas 
gases and we cut it down to one, how much of it, although we're taxed to the bejeebers and our lifestyle changes, how much of a difference does that actually make as opposed to helping those countries that are at 20 and 30 percent getting off coal? Let's bring in Cody Battershill, founder of Canada Action, a national resource advocacy group, and is with us now. Cody, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. I know that, uh, you know, uh, attitudes out West are way different from what they are here, uh, but I'm starting to see the position change even in the East. Are Canadians' attitudes changing about our, inner, uh, about our energy industry and the need for us to be energy self-sufficient and help others? Uh, we can save the planet by helping others get off dirtier forms of energy than ours. Are we seeing those attitudes change? You know, Scott, I really think we are. And this poll goes to show that at a national level, a strong majority, more than 70%, know that we could take our clean natural gas, export it to the world, which would lower emissions by helping to replace coal and now a coal-fired power generation. Now we know what's what's going on in Ukraine, that it's not just about the environment. It's also about people and families and human rights, energy security is absolutely critical as well. And Canada's a leader in that reliable supply. We can support wind, solar, natural gas, nuclear, oil. We need all of the above because energy demand's growing and demand for all of the above is growing. Canada has a really important role to play. And I think at a national level, from the Atlantic coast to the coast of BC, we are a huge producer of resources and oil and gas, mining, forestry, agriculture, you name it. The world needs more Canadian resources. It's a positive message we can all get behind. And Cody, I'm glad that you said this too, because I've talked to so many experts that have said the same thing. And for some reason, this discussion always happens on the fringes or the extremes. And what you said was, and I've talked to many energy experts who've said the same thing, the future will include renewables, but until we get there, it's going to be a a, a mixed bag of fossil fuels, renewables, whatever it is, uh, to get us through all of this. It's a bit of everything, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely a, a mix of everything. We have a record that we can all as Canadians hold our heads high and be proud of. We're a leader in wind. We're a leader in renewables already. We're a leader in reducing emissions from our oil and gas production. We're a leader in carbon capture. We're a leader in hydro and nuclear power generation. And we need to get, when we have our LNG facilities built, we will have the lowest emissions on Earth uh, for liquefied natural gas. That, in my mind, is an absolute no-brainer, so to speak, because it's Canadian jobs, Canadian communities, Canadian revenues for government, and lower global emissions as the world's demand for natural gas grows and grows and grows. And so, too, as the demand for wind and solar grows, we can mine those critical metals and minerals required for those energy sources in Canada as well. We can support all of the above, working together together, while protecting the environment and providing the energy security the world needs. Uh, the Prime Minister recently said he couldn't see a business case for natural gas, which I just find absolutely astounding considering everybody's house, and if it's not that, it's something worse, is heated with natural gas. Is there a business case for this? We keep hearing, well, yeah, you know, in five years this won't be needed, but gee whiz, five years ago, has have things changed? They really haven't. So is there a business case for this? In the last 10 years, Canada had almost 20 LNG projects proposed by private business ready to make multi-billion dollar investments. And unfortunately, a lot of those investments left Canada and instead they happened in Australia, 
They happened in the United States. They happened in countries like Qatar. What Those are the world's three largest LNG exporters. The German chancellor who came to Canada just went to Qatar, and Qatar said they're signing deals to give Europe and Germany more LNG in five to seven years from now. There is absolutely a business case, which is why Nigeria is going to send more LNG to Europe. Argentina is going to build their first LNG facility. The United Arab Emirates, Norway, uh, uh, Australia, the United States, Mexico is looking at building LNG. All of these other countries are uh, re- recognize the reality that natural gas demand is going to grow and grow and grow. So let's seize this important opportunity for Canada, maybe streamline some of the regulatory hurdles and attracting investment to Canada is, 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 is the right move for families, for communities and for the environment. So let's get it done. Let's work together. Has has Canada shut down its Canadian energy industry before viable alternatives have been there? I mean, are we caught with our pants down here? Well, you know, Canada's importing a lot of oil. We've been importing oil from places like Saudi Arabia. We were importing oil and refined products from Russia over the last decade. Um, We aren't completely self-sufficient, and we should be. And we have hurt local families. We've seen investment, for example... Uh, several years ago, the Norwegian National Oil Company sold their assets in Alberta because Greenpeace was protesting in Norway. Then they invested in Brazil. And all of these protests against responsibly produced oil and gas from our neighbors and our, our family members in Canada, our fellow Canadians, all of these protests, haven't, it hasn't reduced demand by a single barrel. Demand has never been higher. Demand is still growing. And all of the green groups, so to speak, all they've done is help other countries, other suppliers that have weaker climate, environment, human rights standards. That's not a win for Canadians, and it is not a win for the environment. Do Canadians, do you think, uh, Cody, really have a grasp of this issue? Are they simply reading the headlines and, yeah, we got to save the planet and let's move on uh, without even really following where this is going or how we ended up where we are now? Yeah, you know, energy is really complex. I mean, the, the fact is, natural gas is not just heat for homes. Natural gas allows a lot of industrial processes to, to happen. Natural gas actually helps make fertilizer that's feeding half the world right now. So it is, it is very complex. As Canadians, we have to try to cut through the polarization, raise the level of decorum, work together and understand that Small businesses, manufacturing operations, and supply chain businesses in Ontario are helping the energy industry in the Atlantic provinces and the the energy industry out west, mining, forestry, agriculture, renewables, oil and gas. We all win as Canadians when we work together as provinces and as a country. And so at Canada Action, and people can check us out on social media, our website, order some free stickers. You know, we're trying to, to educate to invite collaboration. And we're very proud of our record on renewables, but we're very re- uh, realistic as well as proud about our world-leading record on oil and gas, human rights, and the environment as well. It's going to take a mixed bag to get us out of this. Cody Battershill with his founder of Canada Action National Resource Advocacy uh, Group. A new poll, Canadians see our energy products as a boost to global sustainability and uh, self-sustainability. Cody, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley joins us now. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news is the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing phenomenally well. How are you? I'm doing great. I can see the pendulum shifting in this country. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you feel that... Uh, that we're starting to get back to the center. Are you, are you sensing that at all? Polls today about uh, Canadians thinking we should do more for sustainable energy and being self-sufficient and helping others. Uh, people saying that they want to, uh, you know, they're concerned about health care, prices of houses, uh, prices of groceries, energy and such. And, and, you know, I thought about this earlier. I would, I, I just hoped, I, I hope that our prime minister would get just as excited about fixing the healthcare system, would get just as excited about working with the provinces to come up with some sort of template. And we all know they're all pushing it back to each other. It's a provincial problem. It's this, it's that, it's whatever. Uh, at the end of the day, it's broken. And uh, the provinces seem to be the only ones screaming about this. I would love to see him show the enthusiasm that he shows for saving the planet to save our healthcare system. I would like to see the enthusiasm he has around a dental plan. Who wouldn't want that? I want to see the same enthusiasm on fixing our healthcare. On daycare, I want to see the same enthusiasm on healthcare because all of these templates are based on the healthcare system. So, daycare, dental care, is it all heading in the same direction that the healthcare system is? I want to see the Prime Minister focus on things that really matter to Canadians. Uh, do you think we'll ever see the enthusiasm for fixing something as we do for going towards goals that we never can really measure? Let me broaden it, Scott, because I'm not just going to put this on the Prime Minister. I think we can do this with an awful lot of politicians, especially those who are at the very, very top, the very highest level cabinet ministers and others many of whom have been in politics or in government for a long, long time. They have been career politicians. They have been involved in this kind of stuff from all parties. All right. It's not just the liberals. We see it in all parties. Yep. They, for the most part, in many cases, have not, we hear this all the time, but it's true, have not had to deal with the stuff that the people have had to deal with. I would like to see how different we might have, food costs, for example, or things that affect food costs, if the prime minister or the leader of the opposition or senior cabinet ministers had to go out and do their own grocery shopping with their own money, especially those who live in homes like, you know, Stornoway or live in uh, uh, Sussex Drive or whatever else, if they had to pay to fill up their own cars, opposed to having government cars, if they had to pay for their own flights out of a certain per diem or something, whatever. If they had to live the way people live rather than having these things done for them, I absolutely guarantee these things would be looked after more than the pie in the sky ethereal ideas that you're talking about. But when you never have to handle those day-to-day, everyday mundane things, they don't really seem like they're that big a deal. So I have the room in my brain and in my psyche to be thinking about these grandiose ideas because what my family is going to eat well it's just there and whether my car is full and i can get to my next appointment it's there it's done i don't have to worry about it that's the problem 
is that no matter how many times we say this, and it's not, again, it's not just the prime minister, it's all parties, those who become, who get put into these positions eventually lose touch with what is going on in real people's lives, period. Uh, You know, we're seeing carbon taxes go up in 2023. I'm all for saving the planet. I got kids. They're going to have kids one day, and hopefully their kids will have kids. Everybody wants to save the planet. 90% of Canadians feel that way. Uh, However, however, why are we pouring so much money into carbon taxes and things to save the planet? uh, Justin Trudeau is not going to save the planet. Canada produces less than 2% of greenhouse gases. Even Even if we tax the hell out of everybody and shut everything down, what would we get to? 1%? What the hell does that do for the country? What does that do for the planet? Well, as opposed Scott, to a- helping as opposed to helping those that are at 20% or 30% or even buying our refined products from from bad players just so we can say our hands aren't dirty. Okay, I mean, there's a second like part enough. to this. There's a second part to this and we're actually talking about this on my show in, in a few minutes and that is you now they are now looking in Europe, in parts of Europe, they are now looking at a a truly desperate situation. A truly desperate situation with energy this winter because they have locked in and so much of their energy comes from Russia, which is not coming to them anymore. If we want to save the planet, I would argue there's more than one way to save the planet. You can save the planet through environmental means, or you can Mm -hmm. save the planet through hands-on practical ways, which is we will provide you with a way to stay alive in the winter when it's freezing cold and you can't heat your house. That's another way to to save the planet. But we've decided that that way is not allowed, that we will long-term save the planet. But in the meantime, well, you'll figure it out. We'll give you hydrogen down the road somewhere, or helium or whatever the (laughs) heck it is that we're going to talk about. That's not going to help those people who are in a lot of these countries this winter when they're rationing because there's not enough energy to keep them warm or to keep the manufacturing plants open or keep the lights on. And this will still be a problem five years from now. This will still be a problem five years from now. Well, it's not going to change. And everybody thinks there's going to be some sort of magic solution in five or ten. It's not. We've been waiting five, ten, twenty, fifteen, thirty years for this. It's not developed yet. I'm. I'm not. I don't object to any leader having big ideas about things to do really well and to improve. It's a mixed bag. We need everybody. But But I think if you become so entirely narrowly focused that you can't see anything but the exact thing that you're focused on, we're going to have other problems. And as I say, one example, and we're talking about it in the show, we're hearing now that Europe may have plants closing down this winter because they can't keep them going, which is going to then mm. not only is heating, not only is it power, it's the it's the economy. So you're now having people who won't have food and won't have money to buy food. This is this is something Canada could and should have done. We should have been in a position where we can say, Russia, you want to turn off the taps and you think that's going to be the thing that the, 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 the leverage that's going to make you win the war. Guess what? We're stepping in and we're going to help them. And your power that way is gone. That would have been something we could have done that would have altered the world. You want to change the world? There is changing the world. But we don't do that because that would hurt the world, I, I, I guess is the statement. 
I, I, I don't know. And, 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 you know, if we were to start all this, well, it's going to take five to however many years to build that. Well, what's going to happen in five? Like, are you going to have an alternative by then? And what is it? I mean, it's bizarre. We're, we're you know, it's supposed to be a mixed bag. We, we need the solutions from the left and the right and the center. And, and yet we're fighting this in the extremes. I don't get it. What would uh, This will continue. Run. I, I know you yep. got to run, but what would happen if the shoe was on the other foot? What would happen if we were heading into winter here? and we did not have power, would we be wanting governments in other places that have huge reserves of fossil fuels to be saying, oh, we can't help you out. You're going to have to be cold because we don't want to hurt the planet right now. Or would we be saying, we need your help right now. We can worry about that yeah. other stuff down the road. It's great to say we want to do all these ethereal things. You have real people in real places with real lives, with real problems that we have the potential to really help. We're choosing not to for a bigger picture that may or may not ever come to fruition. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the pan customer, to have the last word. Scott, it's Tony here. Uh, there was, when you were talking about the politicians coming down to, out of their high horse and come down to live with the rest of the people, there was a financial minister that would not do his household budget because he couldn't relate. His wife had to do the budget because he couldn't relate to the $100 and $50 when he was looking at $100 million and $500 million in the budget that he had to cope with in for the government. Thank you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.